Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodities strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC research team. Despite trillions being passed through recent bills to reduce inflation and spur infrastructure spending, neither goal has really been met. At first blush, the prospects of all that federal money being directed at much-needed infrastructure improvements and repairs was music to the muni market's ears. However, that dream of being part of the funding solution has never really materialized and only added to the myriad of issues facing the tax-exempt market. Joining myself and Karen Altamirano this month to discuss the many challenges the muni market is facing is Hector Negroni, founder and CEO of Foundation Credit. For those unfamiliar, Foundation is a leading alternative asset manager dedicated to municipal credit and infrastructure debt markets in the United States. Hector's no stranger to our markets with a career spanning over three decades in investing proprietary trading, public-private financing, derivatives, and structured products. Welcome, Hector. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Eric. So I guess the question in my mind, three decades, you're still hanging around munis. Why? Great question. I ask it all the time to myself. Um, listen, I have a I have a bit of a passion, which is, you know, at the end, what we do uh, in our in our day jobs, investing capital provides for important essential service and public missions across the United States. I take a lot of pride in that. Um, you know, we're not investing in for-profit enterprises necessarily, um, and you know, it usually there's an end goal to you know to the product, and so. Um, that's, that's always been, you know, inspiring to me. I think probably the main reason I've moved on from a more traditional seat in the space to doing this is I kind of have this, um, goal of shaping how we package United States municipal credit and local infrastructure debt to the global institutional investor. It's not something we do very well as an industry. We don't organize our opportunity set and the investing needs very well for large sophisticated institutions. And at a time when the demand has probably never been greater for that capital, I think it's you know a good business idea as well as just a good altruistic motive to try and you kind know, of organize capital more efficiently in a more scalable fashion. So I'd like to know, I mean, for our listeners that may not be familiar with you and Foundation, um, can you tell us about Foundation and, and the strategies that you offer? Yeah, so, you know, I grew up uh, pretty much being um, proprietary trader investor at large balance sheets, working for large, sophisticated institutions, frankly, many of them who didn't understand the marketplace or for, for whom it was not a very big part of their business. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at a French bank for 11 years. That wasn't a big part of their business. I was at Goldman for about a decade and municipals isn't center to Goldman's identity. And so I'm very used to communicating um, and investing uh, in this space, working for sophisticated people who don't necessarily understand the space very well. And I realized it actually was a business. I realized like taking that outside of an institution and working rather than working from one person who allocates me capital, working for many people who can allocate capital to us was a good idea. Sure. And so taking, taking it outside these large institutions to be able to form capital, form large pensions, sovereign wealth funds, endowment foundations, high net worth clients, family offices, so that we could you know bring them the opportunity set was Probably a good idea. The other thing is most of the capital that focuses in our space is passive, long only, focus on current yields from investment grade product. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a perfectly reasonable premise to invest. <clears throat> it's just not reasonable that it represents 80 or 90% of the mandates across our marketplace. Our marketplace is really out of balance in its lack of diversity amongst participants. And I think actually that informs some of the opportunities that come to us and some of the nature of the liquidity in the space. And so, you know, we've been around for about 10 years. We manage a range of strategies from um, long only strategies to a hedge fund total return strategy to what is most interesting now to me is like a mid-market private credit style approach to infrastructure debt in the United States. And that's everything from, you know, some tax exempt use of securities to bilateral loans on specific projects. So it's a wide range of things. Our goal is to create customized, scalable solutions 
that are attractive to the global investor looking at other asset classes and other areas um, where we think we have um, a differentiated kind of return stream, a really drastic and a really attractive risk-adjusted return offering. I mean, just to put some numbers around it, I, I believe it was a little over $1 trillion, right, that came out of two, two major bills. It was uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure and, and Jobs Act um, that, you know, wanted to direct funding towards the infrastructure space. And, and, you know, for those who don't follow infrastructure in the U.S., it's in pretty heavy disrepair, right? I mean, I think the last grade was in 2021, and I think U.S. infrastructure you know, it was close to a C minus. Um, you know, are you disappointed that a lot of that money hasn't made its way to the market? Um, I'm, not I'm not disappointed as much as I'm just not surprised. Let's start with, first of all, you know, the municipal marketplace and by extension, the U.S. infrastructure marketplace is a bit of an accident. It's a historical creation out of the way our country is organized. It's mm. all local. Um, it's probably operates under 50 different jurisdictions, 50 different states. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the decisions for which projects, how to procure, how to fund them, how to secure financing, you know, debt financing is not uniform. That is exactly the opposite of almost every major developed nation in the world. So in England or as elsewhere in Europe or in other developed countries, when they want to move forward with infrastructure, the decisions are made at the very top level. The central government, the federal government makes a decision around infrastructure. It makes a decision around a process to distribute revenues, to raise revenues, or maybe even to privatize the assets and move them into the private sector. We don't have a uniformity in that approach. Um, that creates a lot of opportunity. It's frankly why we have a municipal marketplace to start with, which yeah, is absolutely. the intensely local nature of decision-making. And so, it's very hard for the federal government to be effective in kind of like sending a pulse of um, capital that, you know, ends up in some well-intended policy result of whatever, whatever they think they need to do, fix bridges, tunnels, deal with carbon transition, address social, social needs. And so I'm not surprised that the federal dollars, while well-intentioned, aren't having an immediate impact. There's a couple of problems. First of all, you know, state, and local governments are wary of the federal government. Like nothing, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Absolutely. Um, when, the, when the money comes down the pike, it often comes with some strings. The experience with the Babs market, for example, has scarred a number of local issuers, and they don't. They're really not interested in getting the federal subsidies with you know secret strings attached to them at a later date. Secondly, is you know the regs for the application of subsidies in all cases haven't been really well defined yet or written. You know. The, there's a $400 billion pool of capital for energy lending, what will, yeah. large, what, will, what will be the largest private credit energy fund on the planet Earth, the Department of Energy's loan portfolio. You know, it's not clear, like, how that capital is allocated, the decisions they make, the types of deals they can do, um, especially, and, and they're not very good at looking at a very small local size. Yeah. They're good at looking at really big deals. Um, do you think their intention was to sort of get that money earmarked so it was at least carved out and just sort of figure out the details later, though? Yeah, that's why I use the word well-intentioned. I think that the point was <laughs> let's, let's, show, let's show an expression of interest in real yeah. scale to move the needle here. Um, but, you know, it's like a ball, you know, pachinko machines. If you remember pachinko machines, you know, the ball would come down and move mm -hmm. around. You never knew where it was going to land. That's yeah. how kind of like federal policy works when it kind of allocates dollars <laughs> up. It's not as direct a connection. Um, you know, there, there, there's, um, there is some really interesting opportunity around this, which is there's, you know, it is going to create equity capital in the way of grants or um, tax credits for governments and private capital to kind of focus on projects that maybe won't sit on government balance sheets. I mean, one of the things we, when we talk about infrastructure, historically, the amount of infrastructure that was being financed was largely sufficient and you know, of sufficient scale that it could sit on a, on a municipal government's balance sheet. The needs are growing beyond their resources and capacity, financially, politically, and frankly, technically. You know, governments, not all governments should be in the business of having, you know, uh, a, a solution for broadband uh, on their balance sheet. That's not their expertise. Um, yeah. Not all governments wanna endure the user fees associated with dedicated projects um, and, and some don't even have the resources, yeah. but 
the opposite of that is really important, which is, and I think this is where the government's intentions were good, which is they realize there's a number of projects that have to happen in order to make, you know, a lot of local governments effective um, and, and competitive. You know, the analogy I give to people is, you know, clean water seems obvious. Like if you live in a community that doesn't have clean water, you're going to have demographic shifts. You're going to have challenges Absolutely. in a lot of ways. It's get, you know, that, that start to become extensive to the things like broadband. Like if you don't have rural broadband, you're going to have people who are going to be willing to live there. They're going to go somewhere else where they can operate in a more virtual world. Look at us communicating here virtually. Like if you don't have a jurisdiction that allows for people to be connected, you know, broadband is becoming a part of infrastructure that the government knows it has to facilitate. We could talk about EVs, setting aside a political view on where you are on the whole topic. Like to the extent that there's an environment and a group of people want to have that, that's only as effective as the logistical channel of charging. And Absolutely. So, you know, accelerating those things which are going to create new industries, demand for products, um, and, and kind of, you know, round out the supply chain of infrastructure is what I think the intention of some of that capital was. So putting the, the federal money aside, why do you think uh, states and local issuers uh, haven't taken up the charge to, to fix these issues? That's the better question. Um, I think rather than asking why doesn't the federal government fix it all, the question is, how are state and local well, government, why haven't state and local governments been able to keep up with the pace of demand of the shortfall, you know, they have the shortfall of demand, or the, what they call the infrastructure gap, right? Yeah. The gap between needs and, 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 and funding. You know, first and foremost, there is a shortage of funding. I mean, if you think about it, just we're all finance people. So there's a capital stack with every project. And historically, you know, in the municipal marketplace, you know, equity is the government's ability to raise taxes and commit capital. To the extent that their resources are strained, that limits their ability. They're, we're having, you know, significant crowding out of available resources from a variety of places, whether it's pensions or other essential services. Um, yeah. You know, there's there's definitely this interesting crowding out effect. Um, you know, you brought it up recently when you were talking about in New York City, the, the migrant issue, you know, the mm -hmm. cost of providing housing for the influx of migrants is crowding out available resources for other things, not not unlike what you know unfunded pension liabilities did years sure. ago. But rather than I think the problem is is the priority. You know, infrastructure is not a particularly sexy priority, yeah. and so as a result, rather than it crowding out other priorities, other priorities crowd it out. So one is resources. Well, um, let me ask you before you before you go yeah. on, right? So you, that speaks specifically to let's say tax backed issuers, right? What about all the funding that's not getting done for, let's say, toll road issuers or yeah, water and sewer issuers who who have that dedicated stream and who don't really have the same sort of legacy cost constraints that a New York City, for instance, has? They, they don't, um, but the, the quantum of need that they have is pretty significant. So they either have to increase user fees a lot, yeah, you know, get more equity capital by cutting in a new partner privatization in some way. Sure. Or getting some other means of subsidy to create scale um, in their financing package because it's not all solvable from taxes. And yeah. that becomes that goes to the second point where resources are strained. First, you think about finances. Second is you think about where resources are strained politically, like the exhaustion around cost and taxes at the local level is makes it really difficult to be a politician and put up another vote for another tax or another fee. Yeah. You know, people already feel they're being the burden's pretty heavy. And states have to be very competitive with each other on the tax issue. I mean, we saw the New York, Florida flight, which was not, you know, largely driven by kind of tax consequences in many ways. Um, you know, that those demographic shifts are pretty sensitive issues. You know, I heard a really intelligent guy in D.C. that's a nearly oxymoron, but um, say one time, you know, the fascinating thing is the federal government doesn't really see itself in competition with everybody but states see themselves in competition with each other very regularly. And that tells you how, why there may be more loath to kind of either raise taxes or do something that makes them a less competitive, um, you know, jurisdiction or a less competitive place for businesses and for individual citizens. So this goes to the point, you're exhausting resources. One is financial resources, one is political. The other is skill sets. I mean, yeah. increasingly, we, it's easy to look backward and say a big problem with infrastructure is the under, is uh, the, the deferred, capex and deferred operating expenses that have just built up over time um whether it's the liabilities of the employees or whether it's you know 
the actual the actual physical infrastructure has just been decayed and it's been fixed. You know, forward looking, there's a whole new need for infrastructure, which is maybe not within the grasp or expertise of a lot of the you know the local governments. I mean, it's big, complicated stuff. It's a lot of issues have to do with technology. A lot of issues have to do with complicated energy transition topics. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of topics that have to do with like what you know managing climate risk and climate adaptation. And so all of those things, they're beyond a lot of the traditional scope of local governments. And that means that they have to go figure out how to partner with people to do it. And we're back to the problem of fragmentation. There's no uniform approach to that, right? Yeah. Whatever, you know, I like to make the comment sometimes, you know, people forget sometimes is, you know, every school district in Texas thinks they're like a separate country, right? They don't really just don't care what necessarily the other jurisdictions are doing elsewhere because they see themselves as very different, very sovereign. <clears throat> And they're not wrong, but that the scale of that fragmentation across the United States means that we don't really have a lot of the right incentives to create uniform solutions to address this in kind of a holistic fashion that might be more efficient. So going back to um, Eric's comment earlier about the infrastructure report card, um, for transit, we've seen that infrastructure grades range anywhere from B to D minus. That's low, yeah. And then we've got a few that were, were upgraded, but bridges bridges went down, and we saw also that stormwater infrastructure received its first grade, and it was a disappointing D, quoting what what they have on their website. So for you, what are what are um, some areas of infrastructure with the largest need, in your opinion? What's critical? The, the cheap answer is that everything's on the table, um, <laughs> it's because it's true. Yeah, I mean, that's where I am. I mean, my view is I'm not in the policy business. I'm in, I'm in the business of pricing the capital that people want to affect the policy. Yeah. And so my, my job is to determine whether or not something meets my hurdle rates, meets the right kind of risk-adjusted framework that we want to see. What, what is interesting, though, to kind of be more responsive to your question is we're not seeing the demands or needs come from any one particular sector. We're seeing just as many water, wastewater treatment deals as we're seeing carbon and social infrastructure deals. Um, we're probably seeing a little bit less of the infrastructure deals because they tend to be, just the footprint of infrastructure needs tend to be a little larger. And so as a result, they tend to run through a more competitive process. Mm -hmm. um, and they tend to be hand, handled by much larger agencies. But for those infrastructure needs that are decidedly more kind of local, um, we're not seeing any one priority higher than another. We're seeing them all at once and it's pretty chaotic. So. I would add to the to, to describe like why there's such a fascinating point in time here. You have kind of three conditions that are kind of creating this surge. I call it the white space. There's this enormous white space in infrastructure debt that isn't getting filled. Traditionally, you had municipal capital would fill the gap. Yeah. That's got limits. Things have to be qualified for tax and purposes. Maybe the government has to be on the hook for it in some way. Um, often it will require a rating to get some sufficient scale to it. You know, we don't have, we have a certainly fine not rated market, but like scalable projects probably do better with rating capacity. So that's mm -hmm. got some boundary limits to it, right? And we've all seen our market, it was 4 trillion. It's still at 4 trillion, right? It hasn't really grown that much significantly relative to the shortfall of needs of infrastructure. No. The, the, other, the other provider of capital, the other traditional channel was banks. So commercial banks have been a big provider of capital, capital historically. Um, you know, the most recent this year kind of setback at the regional bank level has been fascinating. It's opened kind of a floodgates of like deals that can't get done at the banks that we're seeing now. And so you're getting like a more non-bank kind of solution requirement that's needed. So things that don't fit the tax and marketplace that may have fit a bank need a place for capital to go. And the other source of capital tradition has been kind of the insurance private placement market. Um, we're also seeing some of that, you know, the private place market is becoming more regular. It's still small, but it's becoming more routine, more regular, but it's still insufficient relative to the needs. And so what we're seeing is that white space between those three channels of capital is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. The demand for infrastructure is getting growing beyond the game for infrastructure funding and financing is growing beyond the availability of those channels. That's creating a great opportunity. That's why we're focused on it so much. And, what we're seeing is not no uniformity. It's like it's coming from all directions, all sectors, and all needs. And our job is just to kind of triage what fits us the best. Where can our capital be the most impactful? 
I think what's probably really interesting about that is it's also not coming in, it's not coming in a uniform sector, size, or structure. Some of it's some of it's bridge loans to tax exempt deals, which are shorter dated. Some of it's longer dated financing that are securitizations of streams, but that are more private. They're more you're more like you're more like lending against a private project rather than lending against, you know, buying a long municipal revenue bond. And so that diversity of offerings creates for a really rich environment to kind of allocate capital in. I mean, a lot of times, at least in my opinion, I feel like infrastructure projects in the U.S. get a bad rap as being boondoggles. I don't know how else to put it, right? The cost overflows, they go on for longer than needed. And, and the joke is always that we can't have nice things here, especially compared to how quickly things get done uh, in other countries. Um, do you think that some of the, the issues surrounding costs, like that U.S. infrastructure is almost a, a victim to its own circumstance in that regard, that it almost makes even private solutions not financeable? Listen, I'd rather it be more efficient in the way we track it. But yeah. We are where we are, and we are who we are. I would say the idea of it being boondoggles, that's a little unfair. I think it's probably viewed through the lens of that that portion of infrastructure that gets financed through the non-rated municipal marketplace. Like we probably have too many deals that people look away from credit and just say, oh, it's tax exempt and it's got a high yield, I'll buy it. And, yeah. and that was discriminating a focus on the underlying credit. And that's that's where those failures have been um, you know, this is, this is, this is, that's where they've come where they've come from. But for broader infrastructure needs, yeah, listen, it's complicated to get a big project done. Look at look at LaGuardia, you know, in our backyard here in New York. I mean, it took a long time to get it done. It's really nice now. It took a long time to get done. It required privatization. It required a lot of kind of federal kind of accommodations yeah. um, for, to get stuff done. So there's it's it's this complicated cross section of jurisdictions. Um, it's the kind of the kind of inconsistent approach to par par partnering with private capital. You know, I'm not saying every bridge and airport should be for sale, but our comfort level with kind of a, a regularly a regular you know privatization or participation with private capital for infrastructure needs probably has you know slowed us down relative to other places. I mean, you know, I don't know when the last time you left the United States to travel to you know some of the more you know developed country's capital, but some of those airports are really nice. I mean, um, they've done a really good job, you know, kind of perversely. One, one of the nicer airports I've been to recently in the United States is a private airport. It's in San Juan, Puerto Rico, of all places. But I think that they are actually, in that regard, their comfort around privatization has served them really well. For a footprint, a geographic footprint that hasn't done a very good job spurring economic development, where they have privatized in the way of their toll road and their airport, it's actually gone quite well for them. So it's, it's a real, it's just, it's, we, we, it's this problem of us not having like a holistic kind of centralized approach to how we approach infrastructure. It's, it's the lack of uniformity. It's in, in some ways, we all benefit from that, um, whether it be investors because we get diversity of choice or whether it be because constituents get to have, you know, more profound impact on their local kind of decisions. But I think at a scale of our country, it's, it's not served as well in addressing infrastructure needs. Look, I, I would think on some level, much higher rates are, are being the headwind to some of the projects that are financeable in the muni space actually getting done, right? We have rates up about 250 basis points in the muni market last year and a half. Um, but on another foot, right, if we head into a recession, the labor market should slack. And I would think that a lot of folks would be looking to come into some of these construction jobs as well, right? I actually think the higher rate environment is going to be a really great tailwind for infrastructure capital. Um, you know, I sit in a seat where I'm an alternative manager. Um, so when I'm talking to our clients, um, I'm having to compete with allocations of capital from other, you know, being made to other sectors and other areas. And when, when the kind of underlying risk that we represent, especially in like, you know, high quality infrastructure projects, maybe that don't come through the municipal marketplace, that come in more like bespoke financings, loans, securitizations, um, are, are, are have a, have a higher have a higher have a higher interest rate to them. Like, geez, fixed income's allocable again, and so the largest pensions and managers are actually thinking about like allocating capital into the fixed income space, and some of it's being oriented into alternative fixed income. You're seeing a ton go into 
private credit. You're seeing a ton go into other forms of other forms of fixed income. But what we're seeing is really interesting is infrastructure debt is becoming a category. It's it's actually two words that used to not be put together five years ago. I would talk about infrastructure debt as an investing category and nobody knew what I was talking about. Now there's significant multi-billion dollar platforms from the largest managers on the planet who have active strategies around this. So I think there's more capital being gathered, more expertise being gathered. Um, and that's good. I, I think listen, public the public sector's needs are well served when they have a diversity of choice for capital. Something I always say. One of the things we have that's a negative byproduct the way our market's organized is that the structure is so concentrated in long only tax US taxpayers, we don't avail ourselves of the you know opportunity to kind of draw capital from global from the global pool of 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 uh, of, in, of of capital. Muni issuance, um, I guess sticking with, with that topic, muni issuance we've seen is is down about, I think it's somewhere around maybe 10% right now compared to to last year. So do you think there's what can you comment in terms of investors' appetite for for muni issuance? So I think there's a, I think there's I think there's a very healthy demand for taxes and fixing and product generically, and I think um, the reason supply has mostly been low is I think you know people have found you know listen governments take a lot of our money they have to go through a process they have to, they don't they don't come to market with a shelf registration and launch a deal because they think rates are attractive or because they think rates are going to get worse. Um, they, they're, they're, in, they're not in the finance business. They're in the operations business. And so it takes them a while to kind of, you know, figure out where their operations are going to lead them. And they've had a big cash pile given to them by the federal government from the COVID dollars that has made it easier not to address the marketplace in a higher rate environment. I think that money's running out. Um, I think the needs are, you know, the, the urgency of need is, forcing them to try and do deals. It's one of the reasons our pipeline and infrastructure debt is growing so rapidly. I think more deals are coming that are, that where they can't find a solution in the tax same space. And they're having to come now because the urgency is that much greater. Um, it's everything from, like I say, you know, everything from, uh, you know, port financing to, uh, to, um, uh, you know, decarbonization projects to water projects to, uh, to you know, what work we've done on you know social infrastructure, um, you know, necessary new, you know, commercial and not commercial, but like uh, business and residential housing for constituents. And so, I guess the way to think about that is, I think that the supplies is probably going to pick up, um, but I think there's other options, and not everything necessarily has to come on the back of the municipal balance sheet, and that may temper somewhat the volume of new issue. Uh, listen, I don't sit around and make bets on whether new issue is going to go up or down and which way cash flows are going because I'm not in that space. I'm not a traditional manager. I don't have the level of insight into fund flows or what the retail client base is focusing on. And, I, and I'm certainly not in the weeds like I used to be with the more traditional issuers. So my view is, you know, I, I wait for those to kind of reflect themselves in opportunity. I think the one conclusion I would make is if it's been slow in coming supply and the market's held together fairly well in an interest rate environment that's been, you know, increasing, um, I, I do think there's some risks to the market equilibrium being dislocated. I do think like, you know, a large volume of new issue, um, given where liquidity is in our marketplace, mm -hmm. creates some some kind of dislocation opportunity out there on the horizon that I'd rather put my capital to work. Well, the way, the way we think about allocating capital now, you're probably going to ask a question about liquidity. So let me jump to that. So the way we think about allocating capital now is I don't think the vanilla opportunity in investment grade long-only capital is the best place to put capital work. Fortunately, I have more mandates than that. That's not my day job. I'm glad I don't sit at some of the SMA and mutual fund platforms that are faced with it. They have a tough challenge. I've got to put money to work where there's not a lot of choice in supply. Yeah. The, our, the relative value isn't that particularly compelling. The absolute rates are fine, but you know, absolute rates and a lot of other products are fine too. Okay, there's, you know, our relative value is not that compelling. And so I'd rather be able to be more opportunistic and patient. So we're focused on um, really kind of, ex really barbelling our allocation of capital or either super tactical in the liquid investment grades, tax exempt place and taxable places, capitalizing on the, you know, the really kind of noisy day-to-day 
volatility that happens from the poor liquidity in the space, or we're really focused on the less liquid needs for infrastructure that required customized solutions that are outside the municipal universe, the traditional municipal universe. Well, let me ask you a question. So I just looked at a chart the other day for the total size of the muni market, and it's been about $4 trillion, I would say, for the past eight or nine years. So if we can say for certainty that there's you know, definitely more demand than there is supply, but there's definitely a, a need for more issuance to come into our market, is the market just never going to get larger than it is right now? Are we just always going to be a $4 trillion market, in your opinion? I think there's two problems with that. First of all, for projects to come into our marketplace, they have to qualify for the exemption. And the more the capital, the more the need for infrastructure, especially, you know, benefits from the participation from private capital, the less likely it is to come to the municipal marketplace. And so, like, if, if to start with, if a project isn't a tax and project, then it's going to go to a different marketplace. It's going to go to a different channel. Sure. The other thing is, if we do decide to make everything somehow eligible or more things increasingly eligible and we do see an increased volume of new issue. Yeah. I, I think there's some demand that will fill that gap, but like, you know, the municipal marketplace is just not a, it's the traditional municipal marketplace isn't a place that deals with rapid change. Well, okay. When supply changes very quickly or demand changes very quickly or yields volatility is, you know, up a lot. We don't, we don't absorb, transmission in the change in equilibrium particularly well. And so I think that if in fact there was more, if in fact for some reason the market was going to grow, I'd expect the market to have to get notably cheaper to, to be able to accommodate that pulse of, 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 of demand for capital from issuers. I just think I'm not convinced that tax exempt is going to, that the tax exempt marketplace is going to be the primary choice or the only vehicle by which infrastructure is going to kind of get Financed. I think the bigger problem is if there's going to be more supply, the question is whether you're going to get more supply, and this is pretty far off in the future, but you, whether sure. you get more supply of weaker fundamental credits, right? Yeah. That's that's a, that's a more interesting question. Like, do we think the trajectory of municipal credit is more under pressure or not? If you know, if if resources are getting crowded out, you know, there's sharp demographic shifts taking place that people have to kind of adjust to, um, and you have, you know, not insubstantial problems around some of the larger issues in our space, especially urban issuers. They have to deal with, you know, housing issues, have to deal with pension challenges and other, like maybe the fundamental characteristics are going to be a little bit cheaper. And so maybe the market has to be a little bit cheaper to accommodate that. I'm not a hater. I'm not calling for the market to get crushed in any way. I, I actually just think that we're probably nature nature finds the vacuum right and so if there's a place where capital is being provided away from minis i imagine the demand for that capital is going to increase over time the the mini markets had a lot of challenges post covid can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the liquidity liquidity crunch that you've been seeing in the market yeah i mean listen for, for, when i think about the challenges there are two that I think are real challenges and one that I think is not. I don't think fundamental credit is a particular huge challenge right now. I think it's a long-term trend to be cognizant of, and it's probably more concentrated around some of the larger urban areas facing a different suite of challenges post-COVID, everything from out-migration from urban areas to you know the tax base to the demand for housing to the demand for social services to you know the, the 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 growing pension liability um when they're not maybe making good investments on their on their portfolio but um that's fundamental credit is my biggest concern my two big concerns we've talked a lot about infrastructure and the deficiency of infrastructure and i think that increasingly that's going to get solved in more non-traditional markets than historically has but i think liquidity is the biggest problem in our marketplace right now the most disruptive the most kind of like the, the effect from COVID that I think has been lasting with us the most, it's the most misunderstood, is liquidity. Um, you know, the market's at $4 trillion, that's fine. You know, the, what I find more interesting is the relationship of the volume of transactions relative to the intermediaries in our space. Listen, when the market was at $2 billion in size 20-some-odd years ago, when I was a more active guy in the traditional marketplace, um, you know, the dealer capital was at 40 and $50 billion. 
Yeah. And the marketplace really traded tightly within like ratios. Like the idea that ratios would be above a hundred percent for any persistent period of time was, you know, not serious. And, you know, obviously the monolines homogenized a lot of that risk. We're in a very different place now. The broker dealer capital is low single digit billions. The incremental capital that they're going to be afforded is very limited. Um, most of the they're 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 chasing a shrinking wallet of revenues. Either, you know they're getting squeezed by their issuing clients, they're getting squeezed in margins on trading, and so the profitability of the dealer environment's under pressure. That's not a healthy thing for us. I want more healthy dealers, not fewer. Um, and has overregulation added to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been a big negative. You know, you're now going to see the new Basel Three stuff coming out. They're going to be talking about. We're going to be talking about. HQLA again, you know, municipal high quality liquid assets again. And we're a very misunderstood market because we're not listed, because we're not populated by lots of institutions, because a lot there's other bulge bracket banks that don't even transact in our space. And so I think that there's a lot of pressure around the dealer space that limits the intermediary capital, the capital that makes a market for trend for stuff to trade. Okay, fine. There's a whole universe of people who say they don't need it, they're less important, they're less relevant. Yeah. But the problem is the investor base that wants liquidity is so concentrated and so dominant. It's, you know, when you add up, it's, it's great that maybe we're seeing ETFs grow or we're seeing money flow from mutual funds to MSMA. That, that sounds like we're changing the diversity of the audience. We're actually not. We're just reorganizing the concentration. If anything, we're scaling the concentration. If you organize the marketplace by mandate, you know, something crudely speaking, like 90% of the marketplace is a long only passive income accruing market. Again, there's nothing wrong with that as an investment strategy. There's something wrong with that being 90% of the investing audience in a $4 trillion marketplace. It's not, it doesn't mean it means there's not a large scale capacity to kind of like to move capital around efficiently. And so that means when we get, you know, when the herd is running in one direction or another, they create asset bubbles and downdrafts. And that's becoming more pronounced as we're seeing we're seeing these things where fund flows really pulse. You know, the number of, you and I have talked about this, Eric, the number of million dollar tickets, not the par value, but the number of million dollar trade tickets and tax exempts, the, in, the frequency of incidents of it being significantly higher than ever before is just clustering. Like we're getting these super storms of liquidity demand, buying and selling. Yeah. Not talking about any particular direction, just, just people pushing the button saying buy now, sell now in real scale. And those pulses of kind of super storms of demand for liquidity are overwhelming the available capital base to offer some kind of organized repricing and to kind of like, you know, provide a means of liquidity, a means of warehousing risk across the way. Yeah, there's more hedge funds in the space, sure, but none of them are particularly, they're not large enough to kind of absorb all this. Um, and m most of them are very, very short dated in their focus. They don't hold positions for more than a handful of days, short number of weeks. And so their ability to kind of provide real scalable kind of cushion to the transmission of risk when there's a demand for liquidity is limited. And so do you think ETFs are really the problem here? I mean, because I, I think about it in terms of if I'm going to get access to the muni market and I can't buy cash bonds, I could buy ETFs and then redeem them, force and you yeah, know, force I, myself I to get bonds that way. I think they're noisy. Yeah. I think and that's most because the demand the demand create mechanisms are noisy. Because sure. we don't have a market that you can short. I don't think they're a root cause of a problem. They're not like, they're not something that I look at as like, they're not some rogue villain that I'm saying is disrupting our marketplace. No, like, no, no. Just I just think they're exacerbating the issue. They're just, they're just uh, they, they make a little bit of noise in the interim. I think the bigger issue is whether it's ETFs, a concentration in SMAs or pooled mutual funds, that collective sum total of long only investors is so large that, and they tend to move in really uniform fashion. Like they tend to, you know, re retail has a very common characteristic to so it tends to move in very uniform fashion. And so since people aren't solving for absolute return or total return, they're not necessarily pricing the RV nearly as much as they're either pricing what it costs to chase yield or to, or to get rid of yield because it's too low or too, too, too high. Um, you know, the analogy I make to people who are bored of talking to me is, you know, municipal marketplace equilibrium, it's like a sheet of ice. And <laughs> I just think that sheet of ice has just gotten thinner and thinner and thinner. Yeah. Meaning, you know, the, the forces that the press on it from below and above 
it's just really thin. And so it's susceptible, more, more susceptible to technical dislocation than we have been. And so that's a long-winded way of answering your question, which is what's the result that bothers me the most about COVID? The market's just a lot less liquid than it's ever been. Um, do you have any thoughts on what do you think will bring flows back into the market? I mean, listen, I guess in theory, a combination of the obvious, right? Higher tax rates really, really, really improves fundamentals and, um, and cheaper and cheaper outright prices. Well, we're a ways from any of those being on the table. So I'd argue there's some indigestion involved in getting to the conditions that allow for the marketplace to be bigger. Um, we're probably not well positioned for that right now. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I don't, again, I'm not like a alarmist around the marketplace. I just think it's, I was, listen, I've been an alarmist before, like in 2008, I remember telling everybody how like the leverage in the marketplace was a massive problem. We had our own version of subprime. We had a lot of risks that was really wrapped and levered. And I was alarmist then. I'm not now. I just, I'm more concerned that people aren't pricing liquidity right. And that, that, that create the, 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 the second order consequences of that is it means that like the opportunity set in our space has gotten narrower. Like I don't think investing in credit is as compelling as it once was when it's so expensive and liquidity is so poor. Um, and I think that means that I'm focused really, like I said, really tactically on up in quality relative value of which there's less every day. And so we're super patient about putting capital work and the hurdle rate for putting capital out the door is higher because of liquidity than it's ever been. So we've identified two areas that are you know, frothy or, or have issues in your opinion, right? Infrastructure, debt, um, the inability to sort of finance the growing gap, you know, and that folds nicely into what's going on in the muni, muni market as far as the growing illiquidity that's going on. So I guess my question would be, great, we've identified these issues, how do how do they get solved? How do you address them? Or is this where you know firms like yourself you flock <laughs> into the space to be that liquidity provider? Yes, yes, to, yes to both. I mean, you know, <laughs> I think it goes back to something I've said all the time. Like the marketplace suffers from a lack of diversity in participants, and if firms like ours with more diverse mandates, with more flexibility around capital base to buy more non-QCIP, non-tax exempt securities make a difference, well, good, so be it. I mean, I think that's a need. I think, I, you know, I think, you know, and I think people have ever heard me talk, they've heard me say this before, I tend to repeat myself. You know, if we were convened by the federal government to sit in a room and create the marketplace for local infrastructure and essential services, the last thing we'd walk out with would be a 1.5 million QCIP security universe that can't be shorted dependent on tax exemption largely drawn from u.s retail taxpayers like it's not particularly scalable or efficient again not a bad thing to invest in no. there's nothing wrong with it as, as it being a, you know a business but it's not a way to build a market um you know we don't have things that scale well we don't have things that are um sufficiently homogenized to create you know attraction to global capital and so when our needs are bigger then maybe the capital in the marketplace, one could argue, maybe the needs of public finances undercapitalized using the I municipal mean, marketplace as the only channel. And that's great, meaning we have to create a diversity. So Babs was really interesting. Thanks to the federal government for making a good thing not work well. Um, you know, they you know, they're really particularly unhelpful whenever they get involved. Whenever somebody from DC wants to talk about our marketplace, I make sure to get on the phone to tell them to stay away because they're particularly unhelpful. Um, you know, we're perfectly capable of managing our marketplace. You know, states are perfectly good stewards of, you know, good governance for the most part. Um, <clears throat> but what we could use is, you know, a more a greater willingness to diversify the capital base. So you said you're you're not an alarmist, or at least right now you're not. Uh, so we would love to know what it is that keeps you up at night. I think there's only two things that really keep me up at night. Liquidity doesn't keep me up. It's uh, We just have to accommodate. It's just adjusting the knobs on how we allocate our capital and take our risk and price our risk. Um, the, the, the two things that keep me up are, are really like, I think that there's, they're kind of, they're two, two, they're two sides of the same coin. I think that there's a growing political 
consequence, uh, there's a growing political impact on credit. Um, it used to be, I think we all would feel comfortable around our position because governments acted really well. Their willingness to pay was really there and then and, and they had the resources and they, so they were fundamentally sound. They were governmentally, you know, from a governance standpoint, very sound. And our legal position felt very robust. And I would say, you know, the, 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 the cumulative results of, you know, the handful of high profile bankruptcies, they're not helpful as presidents. Um, you know, I feel more, especially when I enter into complicated situations, it's one thing when it's, you know, a double A rated entity that has, you know, isn't over levered, has ample, you know, tax raising capacity and, and a really, really robust demographic and economy. But when you're in the more difficult places, you're forced to address stakeholder analysis more readily. And stakeholders now are like, you know, the taxpayer and whether they're in, 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 in the, the kind of, the kind of the political kind of uh, dysfunction that we have between, you know, tribalism between, you know, you know, when I come in and lend money, am I a vulture somehow? Cause I'm lending you money on terms that make, you know, that make sense for my capital, but you somehow think that that's I'm taking advantage of you. Like, that's not my job. No, I'm just, I'm showing up and telling you what the price I'll pay. Um, and I think that the vilification of um, investors and creditors in this marketplace is a big danger. I worry about it politically. Um, and it's not helped when the attitude politically around financial kind of discipline is so cavalier down in DC and in other areas. I mean, I think, you know, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. I've been in a lender to Puerto Rico for much of my career over the creditor in Puerto Rico left, you know, over this last debacle. I mean, PROMESA is a wholehearted, you know, the, the, the Puerto Rican, you know, bankruptcy law PROMESA, it's, a, it's an unambiguous failure. Um, it's never going to get Puerto Rico back to the capital marketplace. It's served to upend, you know, a lot of rule of law that we understand and accept as investors. And it sets bad precedent at fairly large scale. Like, am I alarmist about it? No. Did they keep me up at night? Yeah. I worry about, I said this a long time ago, I said, you know, you're creating like a pathway for like an insidious kind of upsetting of the standards and norms that we expect when you let governments not be accountable for, you know, having borrowed money that they said they could pay and done so under a rule of law and framework that gave me rights and remedies as a creditor and, and giving them the means to disrupt all that is particularly unhelpful. And, you know, it's not, you know, we have what's on the forefront. Well, not tomorrow, but down the road, we're going to have, you know, an increasing problem with, you know, the growing pension liabilities, eating in resources, you know, limited tax capacity. I Chicago is interesting right now, right? Chicago, my head's not exploding about it. Like, you know, it's still a lovely town. But they have problems. Like they have a public safety problem. I can't speak to. I'm not a. I'm not a policy person. They have a. They have, but their. But their budgets, a struggle. Like it's a really big, concentration of exposure to legacy costs that aren't going down, and their plan is to tax a tax base that is increasingly under pressure. You know that's going to create risks to their kind of the, the health of the tax base and and their ability to address that. That's fine. I'm sure they could solve that, but it's not made easier when I'm not comforted that I'm not going to be you know, well-protected as an investor. Last question, because I know we're running up on time. So I'm going to ask you to get out your crystal ball. <laughs> Does the muni market still look pretty similar five years from now? Or do all these issues sort of force a sea of change that I think no one's really expecting? Let's pretend my crystal ball has a negative side and, and a positive side, right? Let's see that. Let's How about see, that? A true hedge. <laughs> a true hedge. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Um, listen, the negative outcome is the marketplace becomes harder to invest in only the only those that have the best you know balance sheets and do the most disclosure and look like they have the best governance get the capital and everybody else really suffers and draws capital from federal government or has to borrow much more expensive rates there's there's a reckoning around that that could come um I, you know i don't wish for it of course um you know i do think i do think some penalty has to be meted out to people who don't do a good job. You know, the bad apples are ruining it for the rest of the apples in some ways. Um, and you can see a risk where like, you know, I, I remind everybody every day, every budget for the last 20 years has had some version of capping the value of the exemption. And at some point in time, we'll lose in the pitch battle of a late night horse trading at Congress where like they'll, they'll create some, you know, 
negative impact on the exemption. That's a, certainly a possibility. I don't think it's likely. I'm not worried about that, but I just it's it's an unavoidable risk that the probability is small, but grows a little bigger every year that you know we're a political object as an entity and as a as a, as a as a market. The opposite side of that is people respond to reality and they reflect the discipline required to you know cut either cut expenses or you know or 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 pay the cost of capital that are required to go out to a more diverse capital base you know in some ways tax exemption does a lot to kind of um uh kind of disguise the real cost of capital um especially as you move down the credit spectrum and so as more needy entities face challenges to raise capital you know maybe if they can get it from more diverse longer term partners we're among those people that can provide solutions for them. Uh, they they get you know they get a, f a firmer foothold from which they can you know grow and 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 um, and you know and manage their 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 um, their city county or state out of its out of its out of its position. So I'm not like uniformly negative. I'm cognizant and respectful of the challenges we face um, that in, in the kind of political nature of things that impact the investing marketplace. But overall, I think you know the essentiality of what we provide. Um, I think we're listen. I think we're generally a responsible culture. Um, you know, people are going to stand up and do the things that they have to do to kind of not the let not this let this can come kind of not let this devolve into some kind of free fall where we're we're knocking on the door of the federal government to be a ward of this you know to be a ward of the government. How was that for not how was that for not apocalyptic? It was even keeled and an exact hedge, unlike a market where you can't hedge. All right, Hector Negroni, thank you. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, thank you for educating us on sort of the two areas I think not a lot of people are paying enough attention to, but hopefully after they listen to this, you know, it'll be a topic of conversation that we can sort of expand on going forward. Thanks so much. Thanks for hosting me, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you.